the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Other than the obvious. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what the hell is going on is there's an election, obviously. And one of the big issues in that election is energy. We have a situation where the United States has become an energy superpower. And the reason is because of the boom in fracked oil and natural gas. That has not just put us on the path to energy independence, but also made us a major exporter of energy around the world. That has huge national security implications. You know, people who are concerned about wars in the Middle East, why are we so concerned about the Middle East beyond the issue of human rights and all the rest of it is because energy security, right? Russia has tried to use energy to squeeze the necks of the, uh, of the Baltic states and the, and the countries in Eastern Europe as a, as a tool. Well, American energy exports help with that. Any part of the world where you look, our emergence as an energy superpower has had positive impact on American foreign policy and our interests. And we now have a debate in the campaign over whether we should continue to invest in fracked oil and natural gas or whether, as Joe Biden wants, we should get rid of fracking and eliminate fossil fuels. So what do you think, Danny? You know, I mean, it's a very, you know, it's obviously not as black and white an issue as fracking or no fracking. There are environmental considerations that we care about. And what we see is that fracking, uh, you know, fracking has caused no small amount of controversy. But if you talk about the benefits, and I think you laid them out very importantly, you know, the fact that we're not dependent on Saudi Arabia, on Russia, the fact that we are, in fact, able to help control the price of oil and gas globally has genuine implications, for example, for European dependence on Russian oil and gas, Ukrainian dependence on Russian oil and gas, or on our need and dependence on, on OPEC countries. So all of those things give us a lot of leverage, but I think there are downstream elements of this that we forget about. You know, people say to themselves, oh, you know, you don't need, my, one of my favorite Upper West Side comments, you know, you don't need to have that gas guzzling, disgusting car. You can just buy a Tesla. And the answer is, well, A, no. that's not right. But also, you know, where does electricity come from? Where do Tesla's parts come from? Where do the parts that make all those windmills come from? You know, we need, you need to use rare earths, which come from China, in order to be able to make these hugely expensive windmills. We can't have a conversation without using the label, you know, climate denier, or, you know, slave to the oil industry. And there's no middle ground. It's, it's pathetic. Well, you know, it's funny, as you mentioned, Tesla is my, my daughter's hockey coach got a Tesla and I'd always tease him and say, how do you like your coal powered car? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, like the old steam engine, you know, shoveling coal in there to get your car moving, you know, but so you know, she spent lots of time on the bench paying for that. I'm sure she did. She's that's only the beginning of ways that she's paid for me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But you know, the, the thing is, is that, look, we obviously over time, through the free enterprise system are going to transition to renewable energy because 
that's what free markets do. They find the most efficient ways to do things and the cleanest ways to do things and people have a value on clean energy. And uh, so that's a good thing. And we actually, the whole push for clean energy, at least on the right, uh, started not because of global warming, but because of dependence on Saudi Arabia after, after the Persian Gulf War and then all the, the troubles we had in the Middle East in the last decades. A lot of conservatives said we should get behind clean energy because you know, that'll make us less dependent. And then along came fracking, which got us there a lot faster. And so energy independence is a national security imperative. And you, if you think back during the Cold War, you know, one of the things that made us a superpower was, was our nuclear arsenal. We were a nuclear superpower. Today, we're an energy superpower. And just as it was insane in the 1980s, the nuclear disarmament movement that wanted us to unilaterally give up our nuclear weapons or get, get rid of that advantage that kept the Soviet Union in check, today, we have a energy disarmament movement on the left. And you know, we should all give it up and have the Green New Deal. And we, we have to get rid of fossil fuels. Yeah, well, we'll get rid of fossil fuels eventually over time through innovation. But right now we've got this fracking moment <laughs> where we are an energy superpower and it's advantaging us vis-a-vis Iran, vis-a-vis Russia, even vis-a-vis China and a lot of our adversaries around the world. And why on earth would we want to give that up? Well, I mean, I agree with you in the sense that there should be a very reasoned discussion about it. You know, when we look at... I thought that was very reasonable. Well, I mean, look, you know, you laid out all of the advantages. I think there are people who have environmental concerns, although they haven't been borne out by actual science. Um, People have concerns about oil exploration in national preserves. And I I understand all those things. I really do. And I, I, as I said, I wish we could have a, a rational conversation because I think, you know, look, I think that when you talk about renewables, we have to give credit to people who have been pushing hard on the environment. Yes, of course, the market takes us places because renewables are better for us in the long term. But people who care about these things have a role to play. The problem is that there is this monomaniacal attitude towards all of this as if somehow there was a magical answer, you know, that it's basically you either give it up or you're, you know, ExxonMobil after spilling oil and killing ducks and eagles and, and things like that. And there's no, there's no middle ground. If we look at what's happened to our friends, the Europeans, what we see is that they are absolutely trapped at Russia's mercy. And that is because they have opposed fracking. That is because they have opposed innovation. That is because they've opposed and in mindless fashion nuclear energy, despite the fact that if you want to talk about environmental safety, nuclear energy is one of the most efficient and safe ways of going forward. And what has it given them? It's given them this reluctance to go after Vladimir Putin. It's given them this reluctance to be tough on Russia. The very things that people say about Donald Trump, we are constantly seeing coming from our friends in Berlin. But we also see other things. We see the Chinese who in their desperate pursuit of energy security, are trying to take over parts of the South China Sea that are forging relationships with countries like Nigeria. And those things have costs for the American people in our national security and in our relationships. So, you know, if we're going to have a conversation about this, we need to have a conversation that discusses all the aspects rather than simply pretending there's good Mr. Sunshine and evil Mr. Oil. You are underestimating the challenge of having a a rational conversation because for the left, this is not a subject of national security and environmental policy. It's a religion. 
you're as likely to have a rational conversation with an Islamic radical about how to reform Islam as you are to have a rational conversation with the environmental radicals about climate change and energy policy. We are destroying the earth. This fracking revolution is not a positive development for America. It is extending the period of fossil fuels that is poisoning the world, is going to kill millions of people. New York is going to be underwater uh, within our lifetimes and everything <laughs> is going to fall apart and the world is ending. And you are, Danny, by your reluctance to take this seriously, you are destroying the earth. And so have a rational conversation with those people. Yeah, no, I know. Look, I've been in the middle of that before, and I really didn't enjoy it at all. And now we're going to get really... you in the middle of it again. <laughs> Yay, thanks a, thanks a ton there, Mark. You're welcome, Katie. <laughs> one of the reasons that I am very fond of, and a man who I've known for a very long time, a man named Dan Jurgen, is because he is one of those people who is able to understand all the aspects of energy markets and has really been at the forefront of the national conversation about what these energy needs are, about what oil dependence means, what prospects are for the kind of energy independence that we always thought was a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And uh, we're lucky enough to have him on today talking about his new book, which is called The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Uh, Dan Jurgen is the vice chairman of IHS Market, which took over his very well-known Cambridge Energy Research Associates. He's a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. He wrote a really fantastic book, The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power. He followed that up with The Quest, Energy Security, and the Remaking of the Modern World. And now he's got this new book. So we're lucky to have him here with us to talk about the new book and we encourage everybody to take a look at it. It's a really interesting read. Well, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to join you guys. So you have a new book out called The New Map, and it's about how the energy revolution has transformed the world to America's benefit. Uh, tell us a little bit about the book and, and what you found. What I tried to do was talk about how these dramatic changes in energy, indeed the disruptions that we're seeing, uh, has changed foreign policy. And I look at it in terms of the U.S., I look at it in terms of Russia, the Middle East, what kind of cars we drive, and of course in terms of energy transition. But it's really uh, just such a shift from what one would have thought was going to be the future a decade ago. And one of the major changes is the change in the position of the United States in the world. You know, when I became a, a Dan Jurgen fan was, was after reading The Prize. I wonder whether you think that oil or oil and gas remains a, a prize today. So much has changed. Well, I think there, yes, we've gone from the prize to the quest and now the map of the future. And I think oil and gas remain you know, major parts of the energy mix, but the energy mix is going to be different. And I think that this change in the position of the U.S. is very significant. It, you know, used to think of the world as OPEC versus non-OPEC. Now it's a world of the big three in U.S., Russia, and Saudi Arabia, the world's largest oil producers. Who thought the U.S. would be the world's largest oil producer once again? Well, tell us a little bit about the premise and what's happened in the world that has made the U.S. the world's oil producer, because, you know, there's a lot of people pushing for renewable energy and getting, you know, we have this in the political campaign now where the Democrats want to get rid of fracking and get rid of fossil fuels and wean us off of this over time. It's actually fracking that has put us in this position, isn't it? 
So that's right. The U.S. now, just the month before COVID really struck, and the U.S. was 13 million barrels a day, well ahead of Saudi Arabia, well ahead of Russia. And this shale revolution, if we can, for the term described fracking, the, the impact has been felt not only in terms of oil supply, but it's created manufacturing jobs in Michigan. It saved several hundred billion dollars on our uh, trade balance. Uh, it's been an important source of government revenues, created several million jobs. And it's also given the U.S. a flexibility and a status in the world that it hasn't had for decades. We want you to take us around the world, and we'll get to that in a minute when we talk about how it's affected the Middle East policy, how it's affecting our policy with Russia. But let's stay domestic for a second. The Democratic Party wants to pass a Green New Deal, which would re- dramatically reduce our use of fossil fuels. Would that have a dangerous impact on our national security? We're certainly going to see the, uh, you know, if there's a Biden presidency, he's out there with a $2 trillion climate plan, which is aimed at, quote, getting us net zero carbon by uh, 2050. These are very lofty goals because sometimes people don't look at the numbers. As we speak today, fossil fuels provide 80% of our energy. Uh, There are 280 million cars in the U.S. and about 279 run on gasoline. And wind and solar are about uh, 3.7% of our energy. So there's a gap, I think, between ambition on that part and uh, the reality of the energy system. And, you know, the U.S. has this kind of key role today that um, diminishing it would change it. And what people aren't looking at much, I think, that's very important is how the supply chains for renewables work. And they don't just run through the United States, they run across oceans. I'm fascinated when I think about hostility to fracking. Why is there this left-right divide? You you know, you talk about it in very functional terms in your, your book, and it has been a revolution and it has been transformative, not just putting the U.S. at the pinnacle of the oil market, but also creating jobs, lowering the price of oil and gas, taking power away from those who sought to wield it through their sales of oil and gas. We can talk about Iran, talk about even Russia. Why is this so controversial? You know, Danny, that's a question that I actually scratch my own head. When I hear some of the politicians say, we want to ban fracking, I want to say, why? Uh, The beneficiaries of banning fracking would be Russia and Saudi Arabia, who would fill the gap that will be created in the market. And I think about the fact that when, let's say, somebody, you know, a prominent political figure goes into the hospital to have a stent put into his heart, most of the tools that are used in the hospital room and equipment is plastics. The tools that put the stent into his heart are plastic. You ban fracking, well, how are you going to put a stent in your heart next time? And I think people just don't understand. You know, I want to say to people, you know, you take Tylenol. Have you ever taken Tylenol? Tylenol is an oil product. I just struggle to understand the gap between the slogan and the reality, and it gets to that why question, I think it's emotional. It rouses uh, the population or part of their base. And maybe also just because, unfortunately, the word fracking itself kind of sounds uh, negative. And, you know, maybe if some other term had been used, like uh, hydraulic uh, fracturing or well stimulation, you know, you wouldn't have people out there on the campaign trail saying, I'm against well stimulation. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't fit on a bumper sticker. That's for sure. But, but, you know, it's being against fracking. 
I think it's just puzzling and, you know, not thinking through what the consequences of it would be. So, you know, when I was a speechwriter in the Bush administration and we'd write about energy policy, it was always forbidden to use the word energy independence because that was unattainable. We could never be energy independent. Uh, we're becoming pretty energy independent, wouldn't you say? And and how has yeah. that transformed our national security policy, that growing energy independence? Well, it's quite striking. I, you know, I, I'm struck by what you say, because that's true, because it's sort of seen, what's the point of talking about energy independence? And, you know, at the time, it seemed what we should just be talking about could be energy less dependent. But now, you know, we're not there. We were pretty close. You know, production's gone down, but essentially we're almost there. And because we produce one kind of oil and import another for our refineries, we're actually one of the world's major exporters of oil. One of the major customers for our oil exports today happens to be China. You would not have expected that a few years ago. And in fact, that figures in that phase one of the Trump trade deal with China is exports of energy. So, you know, I've seen it up close in terms of the relationship with India. There are more than one dimension to our relationships with India. India is in a tense situation with China right now. But in a very concrete way, exports of U.S. LNG, liquefied natural gas and oil to India have created a kind of tangibility to the relationship that was not there before and have given us a whole new dimension of that relationship. And that's just one example. You know, another example, whether you agree with the Obama approach to Iran or the Trump approach or what might be a Biden approach, none of those approaches would work if the U.S. was still back in that condition, Mark, that you described where we were heavily imported oil. The Iranians never thought the sanctions that Obama put in place would work because they thought the world needed the oil, but it turned out that Iranian oil was replaced by U.S. oil. So those are just two examples. And, you know, one of the major critics of uh, U.S. shale development is uh, somebody who lives in Moscow named Vladimir Putin, who doesn't like shale because he sees it as bolstering U.S. foreign policy. So outside the U.S., I find South Korea, they like this because it gives them alternatives in terms of dependence on, you know, that they can turn to U.S. for LNG. So you go to other countries and you find, in fact, they think the shale revolution is very significant politically, but that kind of gets lost in the domestic political debates. So one of the things that you talk about in the new map is the impact that oil and gas and obviously the keenness to dominate it has had on China, on the Middle East and Russia. But Talk a little bit about, particularly about the South China Sea, you know, an area where there's been so much tension and a huge, huge passageway for, you know, trillions in in global trade. What's the oil and gas role there for the People's Republic of China? Well, Well, let me first say that the issue of energy imports, energy security has been a very important issue since for China, almost since the Chinese Revolution. The Korean War, they lost access to U.S. oil. Then the Russians cut off their oil uh, when they had the Sino-Soviet split. So since then, the Chinese have always been concerned about dependence. And right now, although they have a rather vibrant domestic industry, they're the fifth largest oil producer in the world, they import almost 75% of their oil, give or take. And so the South China Sea is very important in that. You know, and I have in the new map, I have the Chinese map, what they call the nine-dash line map. It's very interesting. This is a map that is fraught with tension. It goes back to um, 1936, and I have the story of how 
this map developed, both the nationalists and the Chinese communists have adopted it. And the South China Sea has, is significant for them for several reasons. One, it is the most important trade route in the world. It's the way that much of their oil comes to them, as well as other supplies. Secondly, there's a belief in some quarters, although many geologists don't think it's the case, that it may be very productive in terms of oil and gas in itself. And of course, it also gets to the issue between the U.S. Navy and China, that China uh, doesn't want uh, the U.S. Navy to be able to move uh, through that sea. So, as I say, you know, it's the most South China Sea, maybe the most important single body of water in the world from the point of view of the global economy. It's also one of the most dangerous today. Just a, a quick follow-up for that. When you describe, you know, we've talked a lot about the Nine Dash Line and about Chinese ambitions, but when you talk about it this way, one of the things that strikes me is that, particularly in the context of what happened in the Korean War and the Sino-Soviet split, that the main reason that the Chinese want control over the South China Sea is because they worry in a conflict that their access to oil and gas will be limited, which suggests that they're planning for conflict well, sometime in the future. Well, you know, Danny, I think that's exactly right. I compared in the new map the most recent defense statements from the U.S. with the most recent defense statements from China. And of course, what stands out there is Taiwan and a question, you know, which has been out there for such a long time. In the event of something happening with Taiwan, you say, what's the scenario the Chinese have worked on the most? That's probably the one. And therefore, the ability of the U.S. Navy to respond in the South China Sea and the Strait of Malacca. In the book, I talk about what's called the Malacca Dilemma, that strait through which leads into the South China Sea. That's what they worry about. And, you know, if you look at uh, what's happened with the islands that have been built in the South China Sea or built up, they have been turned into what some call stationary aircraft carriers. You know, their military bases, the Chinese have recovered, I think the number is 3,200 acres of new land that they've built uh, facilities for military reasons. So I think this is very much driven by these deep geopolitical issues that hang out there. Going back in history, you know, one of the reasons why the United States and the free world prevailed in the Cold War is because we were a nuclear superpower. And the left at the time supported nuclear disarmament. They wanted to get rid of the nuclear weapons that were critical to our success in winning the Cold War. Well, now, as you point out in your book, America, because of the shale revolution, has become an energy superpower. And it seems like, once again, the left wants to disarm us of the tool that, that has made us a superpower in that way. Do you see that analogy? And is that something well, that we should be concerned about? Mark, I haven't thought about it in those terms, but that is a striking analogy in the sense that the shale revolution has really been a big contribution to U.S. energy security, national security, our position in the world. And were that to be demolished, were we suddenly not exporting LNG anymore? Were we suddenly importing much more oil than we had in the past and go back to where we were in the past as opposed to the recent past? That would weaken the position of the U.S. in the world. We certainly know that other countries are very jealous of the position that we're in today. And yet they're jealous of the position that we're in today, and yet they don't wish to use our example to recreate it. I mean, you know, when I look at the choices that the European Union has made 
basically to prefer to remain subservient, dependent on Russia to continue to, in some ways, subsidize the Putin regime through projects like Nord Stream seems to me to be odd when they they have choices. Let me offer a different perspective on that. The key word that you use is choices. When the Russians cut off the gas through Ukraine in 2006, the Europeans, you know, were not in a good position. Since then, two things have happened. They have made their whole system of natural gas much more flexible. So you can move gas from one part of the continent to the other. The pipelines can go in one direction or the other. And secondly, going back to what we're talking about, is the development of a global LNG market of which the U.S. has been a really central element. So they have their choice on economic terms, on, you know, I'll buy Russian gas, I'll buy gas from Qatar, I'll buy gas from the United States or Australia. So I think that in a way, the gas market, this may sound funny at a time when Nord Stream is, you know, on the very tip of the spear right now, Nord Stream 2, the pipeline from Russia to Germany, and is so controversial. But in a way, if there was leverage in the past that the Russians have, that leverage has actually gone away because, as you said, people have choices, flexibility. And you see that Gazprom has to bring down its prices to stay competitive. So it's more of a market. But of course, right now, it's become intensely political again, and with that focus on, on Nord Stream 2. But if you didn't build Nord Stream 2, Russian gas would just come to Europe through other pipeline systems. But that's what's so confusing, if I can just follow up on this question. So, you know, the Trump administration has made no friends in Germany through, um, well, first of all, Donald Trump's weird and almost fanatical dislike of Angela Merkel. But well, why don't we, Danny, why don't we say complex? Okay. His complex relationship. But what's striking here is that despite having these options, Germany has remained so committed to Nord Stream 2, even in the wake of the Russian attempted assassination of Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader. It seems weird to me understanding the global environment that you've drawn about oil and gas supply, that they would remain so committed to this, which after all is something that's very important to Russia. Yeah. Well, I think partly because it's almost built. Remember when Nord Stream 1 was built, it was much less contentious. What this is basically is doubling the pipeline capacity. I think they're probably less committed post Navalny, I think the Germans resent what they see as extraterritoriality by the United States telling them you can't build a pipeline. But there are probably two other dimensions to their point of view. One is the gas is going to come one way or the other. It's going to be Russian gas that's going to come because Russia is a major supplier. And two, they probably think that breaking the relationships entirely and polarizing them may not be in the interest of stability. I mean, I think the other way to flip it around, and you were going in this way, Danny, is that we've been talking about how energy is a source of strength for the United States. I think our alliance system is also a source of strength. That's something that China doesn't have, and it's something that Russia really doesn't have. And I think you guys probably think that way too. This alliance system and our relations with the Europeans is important for us from our own security point of view. No doubt. Let's talk a little bit about the impact of the pandemic. Oil prices have dropped a lot as demand has dropped. At one point, I think oil oil went to less than $0 a barrel. Much less. <laughs> there was one day when it went to like th- minus $37. And just to tell you how complicated the world is, 
that people lost money on that, you'll never guess who it was. It was retail investors in China who had invested in U.S. futures. Oh, wow. So, uh, so that, I mean, my heart breaks I, for them. I, yeah. I, I really so, wish yeah. it was possible at that time to like buy all my gasoline for the year and store it somewhere. But, but I mean, you know, talk about the impact the pandemic has had on the new map in terms of energy. Well, I have a chapter in the book called The Plague, where I really, you know, I only finished this book in July. So I was able to capture COVID in a way that I think will feel very up to date to readers. And when the big shutdown came in uh, April, world oil demand went down by more than a quarter, almost a third. Gasoline demand in the United States went down by half. So now it's recovered. But we kind of seem to be, if gasoline demand in the U.S. was down by half, it's now down by 17 or 18 percent compared to a year ago. And it seems to have plateaued as the economy's plateaued, as COVID has plateaued. So that's the kind of immediate uh, impact. But I think longer term, you're asked, you know, it's a very interesting questions about how has COVID changed our lives and therefore how will it change how we use energy? You know, are people going to work substantially at home? Is there going to be less commuting? That's one side of it. On the other side of it, we see that, you know, people avoiding public transport. You, you see it, people telling, go back to your offices, but we prefer you don't take public transport. And people owning cars, this rush to buy used cars because of that. It's, in China, oil demand is now actually higher than it was before the uh, than last year, partly because people want to drive rather than take public transport. So electricity demand went down, but nowhere near as much. And in terms of, you know, if anything, our work patterns and electricity use, you know, we've become a more electrified society. We were talking before about Zoom. I mean, many people had never heard of Zoom six months ago. Now, you know, these kind of communications, which depend upon electricity system, are greater. And, you know, the last thing to probably recover from this will be air travel. You know, the jet fuel market is very weak right now. So, you know, I think COVID will have lasting impacts, but probably we won't, you know, by next spring, we'll be able to have a clearer view of it. Some people want to say, oh, well, uh, you know, we saw demand went really down in the spring. Therefore, we're going to see this. That's what the new energy future will look like. And I say, no, that was a shutdown, which had never happened before. We've had supply and demand crises and so forth, but we've never had basically governments mandating a shutdown of their economy. So I don't think we can generalize from that. But I think big question is what will work look like when we come out of this? Oh, it's absolutely fascinating and completely uh, unknowable and unpredictable. I want to ask you another thing because we spend a lot of time talking about Elon Musk and his various adventures. And you know, Tesla has been a, a huge market disruptor, and he's he's been an interesting guy, and and obviously is a risk taker and a visionary. And you know, electric cars are are coming to the fore. I don't understand why people think of electric cars as a great new environmental innovation, because where does electricity come from again? <laughs> A lot of it comes from coal, right? (laughs) Right. And of course, there's also, by the way, a lot of plastics in uh, electric uh, cars. I have a great photo section in the book, and there's this picture of Thomas Edison standing by his electric car and Elon Musk, and it's almost exactly the same posture. But Thomas Edison really tried hard, put a lot of money into it, and it failed. And Elon Musk, of course, has uh, 
put it on the map. And I had an extensive conversation with the chief technology officer, the guy who really did a lot to make Tesla happen. And it's a fascinating story of just, you know, of risk taking and how you can pivot on a dime and try this technology, that technology in that startup culture in California with something that seemed totally impossible. Now it's turned into a massive disruptor and uh, a drive for the electric car. But, you know, at least in the numbers that we do when we look out in our work, I have in the book to 2050, you know, maybe in 2050, there may be 600 million electric cars, but there'll be still 1.4 billion cars that still run on gasoline. And, uh, you know, that's maybe why, Mark, you want me to store some gasoline in your basement. (laughs) (laughs) Boom. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No, I think that could be be dangerous. Um, How long will it be, in your view, until renewable energy becomes economically viable enough to overtake and replace fossil fuels. How long, you know, you've made the case that at least, you know, people have a an argument for that climate change is a great threat and so therefore we need to speed this transition, but you're making you've made a case that the shale revolution and our energy independence has resulted has put us in a really strong geopolitical position. How long naturally would it take to make that transition and how long will that period of being an energy superpower last for us? Well, if we look at it historically, you know, the key moment in the first energy transition, which was from wood to coal, was, and I pinpointed in the book, January 1709, it took two centuries before coal was half of world energy. Now, obviously, circumstances were a little different in those centuries and these centuries. I talk about the shale revolution, but there is a solar revolution too. Solar costs have come down very dramatically over the last decade. And solar is a lot more competitive than it was. Of course, part of that is technology, but part of that is the Chinese manufacturing juggernaut, which is, you know, kind of just dominates the world's solar uh, production market. So, and wind costs have come down too. So they're more competitive. So it's, I think in the future, it's really a competition in electric generation between natural gas and solar and wind. Sometimes people kind of forget that solar and wind don't actually go into automobiles. Most automobiles run on gasoline. And so solar and wind don't really address oil. So I think that the the competitive edge there is with natural gas. And I think it is going to be competitive because those costs have come down. That said, you know, and this is a subject of great argument is, you know, there's still government support and incentives to people. You know, I was talking the other day to a a lady who put solar on her house and she went through the federal tax credit and the state tax credit and some other thing that she'd gotten, which had, had made it economic. When I say the solar costs have come down dramatically, it's the solar panels that are manufactured mostly in China. But, you know, there's still the cost of putting it on your roof. So I'd say the answer is it's competitive. A lot of electric utilities feeling pressure from their regulators and their publics are kind of talking about net zero carbon targets for 2035 or, or 2050, but they are, you know, have to respond to the political pressures they're feeling. But follow-up question is the last question for me. Because the shale revolution has made America an energy superpower and you've laid out all the benefits that that has for our national security vis-a-vis Iran, vis-a-vis China, vis-a-vis Russia, don't we have an interest in extending that period of superpower? I mean, do superpowers tend to speed their getting rid of the thing that has put them in a strong position? 
So uh, from a national security perspective, say, you're, yeah, you're saying should uh, shouldn't we stay shale dependent? Yeah, why would we, why would we ha- want to hang up our championship jersey? Exactly. And, and exactly. Game over. Yeah. I think that's a very good point, and I think that's something that needs to be part of the discussion. And I'm hoping that the new map, which is, you know, it's not a polemical book. It's a narrative book. It says, how did the shale revolution happen? Who were the people who made it happen? Just like who are the people who made this, you know, the solar revolution happen or the electric car happen? But that's right. This is a source of strength. And, oh, and by the way, something that we may hear about, you know, before COVID, this was an industry, by the way, that involved 12.3 million jobs, which is, you know, something that has kind of been lost in the discussion as well. So, I think is what you're suggesting is that there's really some need for balance here and realism in the discussion. Balance and realism in the discussion. What's that? <laughs> so uh, we need more of it. <laughs> we sure do. So let me ask you my exit question as well. You've written about all of these these innovations. You know, it, it's funny for those of us old enough. You know, we can remember the Jetsons, people flying around in their uh, wheelless jet cars things and, uh, and having all these mod cons, some of which have come to fruition. You did a, a lot of looking forward in your book. You talked about, in a balanced way, about you know what could be done, what was in the realm of the possible, what impact some of these new technologies would have. If you have to look forward, what do you... disruptor. Well, what do you think is the biggest disruptor that we have yet to, yet to see on the ground? Not the new electric car, not the solar panel. What is, what is the transformative disruptor? Well, maybe mention a couple of them. One is actually carbon capture, technologies to capture carbon in this current political environment and focus on climate would be significant. I think secondly, something as a kind of a term I invented called auto tech. If you combine electric cars with ride hailing, which will come back after the COVID, combine it with autonomous vehicles and a merger of sort of Silicon Valley and automotive companies into, you know, where you don't own a car anymore and the autonomous vehicle just picks you up when you need it. I think those are two of them, but let's get to the Jetsons uh, and, you know, your personal flying taxi. One of the people in the book is a guy named Sebastian Thrun, who started off developing robots to be guides in a museum. He's the guy, one of the two pioneers of autonomous vehicles, and we're going to see, you know, more of them coming. And there's this fabulous book of him when he won this great race for the autonomous vehicles. And so when I saw him for the book, when I was finishing the book, I asked him, what are you working on now? He said, oh, he's not doing autonomous cars, self-driving cars anymore. He's now doing self-flying airplanes, autonomous air taxis. So I thought to myself, well, that does sound like the Jetsons. So maybe we'll see those in your neighborhood in the not too distant future. So you know, maybe the car- that cartoon series from long ago will be prophetic about our future. <laughs> Finally, George <laughs> Jetson will have his day. Ruh-roh, Relroy. Well, this is a look. This is a wonderful book. We commend it to everybody. The new map: Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Thank you, Dan, so much for being with us. It's great to be with both of you. Thank you. And I have a, a self-driving taxi waiting for me, so I better hop in. <laughs> <laughs> Careful. <laughs> Thanks a ton, Dan. This was flight. great. We have the author of the new map and the prize. And the prize, as far as I can tell, is America is an energy superpower. 
And as they did in the Cold War, the left wants to give away our superpower status and unilaterally disarm. And look, I'm all in favor of improving a renewable energy, but there's two ways to do that. One is, you know, I mean, obviously Tesla is a success because the government supported Tesla for a long time and subsidized the coal powered cars. And there's lots of ways to support and speed the development of renewable energy. But the other flip side of that is the coercive socialist side, which is that the government is going to put fossil fuel out of business. And that's what I'm against. You know, I'm all in favor of innovation, multiple sources of energy. It all strengthens our energy independence. It all strengthens us as an energy superpower if we're the first to get to some of these technologies. But I don't want to give up this. It's not quite a unipolar moment when it comes to energy, but it's certainly a moment of American dominance. And, you know, you and I are both national security people. America doesn't give up its dominance for no good reason. I mean, one of the things that I think that Dan really made clear to us is just how complex this question really is. He digs down. And what's interesting to me is because he's not, doesn't embrace the dogma. Mm -hmm. Some of the reviews of his books were critical that he was insufficiently pious when it came to the challenge that climate change presents to us. The better thing is to understand exactly how this affects all of us before we start talking about throwing it all away in this mindless fashion. Because the generation that is most loyal to this notion that we should return to 18, you know, 22, but without the slavery, (laughs) but also without the fossil fuel and without the cars and without the trains and without the anything else. The generation that is most committed to that idea is also the generation that doesn't remember lining up for gas, doesn't remember the days before Uber, doesn't remember what it was like during the great 1970s, the the great Carter era, in which we all couldn't get where we wanted to go. And on even numbered days, we went to get gas. And on odd numbered days, we had to wait and watch while other people got to their offices. This is the perspective that a lot of people lack. And I really I appreciate the fact that Dan laid that out. I also think what he says about China is absolutely fascinating. He got closer than than many, I think, have to making the case that China is looking for security in the South China Sea because it's worried about the security of its oil supply in the event of a war. Absolutely. And also our policy vis-a-vis India is really involved here because, of course, the largest emitters of carbon in the world are China and India. And so everybody wants to pressure China and India to reduce their carbon emissions. But what has embedded our relationship with India are natural gas exports that have tied us together. So, you know, is, is U.S. national security enhanced if India uses less imported natural gas from the United States? I don't think so. There's this tension that no one wants to acknowledge between our national security interests and the environmental interests that are being promoted by the climate change lobby. They just seem to play it as cost-free. We're going to get rid of all the cars. We're going to get, change every building in America. We're going to get rid of all the fossil fuels. We're going to get rid of the, as Ocasio-Cortez put, the farting cows uh, and eat less meat and all the rest of it. And it's like, and we'll just smoothly uh, transition into this new era of uh, the Green New Deal. And the reality is not only will it hurt us economically, not only would it put millions of Americans who work in the energy industry and the fossil fuel industry out of work, but it will harm our national security in a lot of ways. And I think that any rational discussion, if we're going to have one, has to take that balance into account. It's not an on-off switch. And that means that if we make these decisions about our own 
energy independence, then we're going to have to buy oil from somebody else because we're, we don't have an off switch. Once we do that, cui bono, guess who? Yes, it's the Russians and the Saudis, the very people who Trump is always accused of pandering to, in fact, will be the ones who benefit the most from any precipitous decisions made by the United States about its own energy independence. That is a really important thing for people to understand. This is why we need to ensure that we're not engaging in the kind of magical thinking that is being promoted right now. There isn't a silver bullet. Can we do better? We can. We can do better. I believe we can do better. But I also believe that there is a slow path, not a path that leads to 2030, uh, as some have suggested, or a path that leads even to 2050 that will put us in that situation in which we're back in, you know, 1822. Well, Danny, you're a heretic and we're going to burn you at the stake. Uh, but but we would burn you at the stake, but that would emit carbon into the atmosphere. So we'll uh, have to find another way. (laughs) Burn me in a hermetically sealed room. Thank you. Excellent. Exactly. (laughs) Actually, that was a cool thing. The carbon capture discussion that we had with Dan about that being a real innovation. That is the kind of innovation that really is exciting. But of course, it goes against the orthodoxy. It goes against the notion that we have to end all industrial activity. And so it it will be very interesting to see if we make scientific and technological advances on that, whether in fact it is well received or it's received as something that is just undercutting the need for us to go back to that, you know, 1822. And also (sighs) depends on whether we remain a capitalist country and not a socialist country, because only capitalist countries come up with innovations like carbon capture. Amen to that. I'm a capitalist and a heretic. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's the note on which we can end. Finally, I'm in the wrong and Mark is, well, Mark's never in the right. That's just a definitional issue. But thanks for joining <laughs> us. Hope you enjoyed the discussion with Dan Jurgen. Please do go out and check out his book and uh, send us ideas, send criticism to Mark, and uh, we'll see you soon. Bye. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.